This is What Book Hooked You. I'm Brock Shelley, and thanks for listening. On our latest episode, I speak with Jennifer Lynn Barnes, whose newest book, The Inheritance Games, comes out on September the 1st. A very exciting conversation with Jennifer. Uh, talk a lot about fandom, as well as how she went about uh, developing this book, which was very interesting. Hope you feel the same, so listen in. So, Jennifer, what book hooked you? So one of the first books I can remember really getting its claws into me in a way that I had to read it over and over and over again. I was about 14, and it was Wild Magic by Tamara Pierce, um, which was one of the first high fantasy books I ever read, so set in a fantasy world. uh, And it's about a girl named... Dane, who has a different kind of magic than everyone else in her world. Her magic gives her this sort of bond with animals where she can talk to them and heal them and do all of this. And she starts out the book thinking that that doesn't exist and all of this is in her mind. And she's being hunted by the people from her village who think she's sick and they need to put her out of her misery. And then she goes from being sort of the ultimate outsider to being part of just this wonderful found family. And I thought over the years, why did I have to read the book over and (laughs) over again? And it was that. It was, she goes from being the outsider to having all of these people in her life who love her like family. Um, And I think, you know, I was 14 at the time and I hadn't yet found my place. (laughs) I have a wonderful family. I couldn't ask for better and I had plenty of friends. This sounds weird, but I don't think any of my friends or most of them liked me all that much. We were kind of, you know, you're 14. Right. And um, like, I was kind of the nerd of the group mm. mostly, or maybe I, if people thought I tried too hard or something, you know, so I was friends with all these people who it felt like were friends with me despite all of mm. the annoying things about me. And then later on, I went to college and I met all these wonderful people who mm. loved me because of who I was. And I realized that, you know, I did have individual friendships that were really good throughout my life, but finding that group of people, that group where you feel like you don't have to watch what you're saying, where they love you for who you are. For me during like middle school and high school, Mm -hmm. that was something that existed in books. Sure. And so I think that book, I loved it so much because she goes from being this ultimate outsider to having this huge, enormous found family. And of course, all of the people in her found family end up being like like the king and queen of the kingdom and the most powerful mage in the kingdom. And all of these different, you know, it ends up being this really tight-knit bond with a large array of people. And I think I really related to, she goes into all of this expecting she has to hide things about herself for these people to accept her. And then throughout the book, the stuff keeps coming out and Mm. it turns out, they accept her and love her anyway. And I think at that point in time in my life, that was just something that really resonated Mm. me in what at the time seemed like a wish fulfillment kind of Mm. way. Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. But I've since come to realize it's actually a wonderful thing to expect out of life and to eventually find. That's great because so many times, especially the middle high school period, books for some people fall by the wayside sometimes or because you're – school focuses so much more on reading novels that free, you know, free reading kind of gets thrown to the side. So beyond just wild magic, it sounds like books were just a very integral part of this time 
in your life? Was there certain kind of beyond just this found family theme? Were there other sort of genres or types of books that you gravitated towards? Or was it there a kind of a wide range of things that you would read? I read a very wide range of things. And I remember I used to go to the bookstore with mm-hmm. like $20, which back then you could get a decent amount of books for $20. And I would buy a bunch of books and it wouldn't be unusual for me on a Saturday to read four or five mm. back to back. There weren't that many that I reread over mm-hmm. and over again, the way I did Wild Magic, where I kept having to come back to them. Beyond that, for me, it was just always reading a new book. We actually, I had a closet in my room that was just called the book closet Mm -hmm. and it just had a couple shelves in it. And I always stacked the books three deep to see how you could fit as many on there. And I had the hardest time ever getting rid of books because Mm -hmm. I would get emotionally attached to my actual physical copies. And if I wanted to reread them, they would be there. But for the most part, it was always finding a new story and a new world and all of that. There were only very few that I would go back to and want to read again and again. So with wanting to find these, these new worlds, these new stories, at what point then did you reach the point where you had to create your own worlds and stories in order to kind of maybe feed this need? So I had always wanted to be a writer. Like, I think there was a time temporarily when I was in kindergarten when I wanted to be a veterinarian but by first grade Mm -hmm. it was solidly writer and it was usually writer and something else in part because even when I was six my parents were very (laughs) practical so it's like oh I'll be a writer and a doctor writer and a lawyer one of those things um but I would do the thing that I think many young writers would do where I would start a book and I'd be like this is the most exciting thing in the world and I'd write the first three chapters And then either life would get busy or even more often I would get an even better idea. Mm -hmm. And then I'd write the first three chapters of a new book and then life would get busy and I'd get a better idea. Um, So my senior year in high school, I decided that my goal for the year was I actually wanted to finish a book because I had probably started 50 books, but I'd never actually, I'd never even made it all the way to the middle. I would write those first chapters where you're like, Ooh, frolicking with the characters in the world. And then before any plot had to happen, I would jump ship. And so I decided I made a rule for myself, which was I wasn't allowed to start a new project until I finished the old one. And of course, a new shiny idea came along that I really wanted to write. So in order to write that one, I had to um, actually finish a book. So I did that over winter break, my senior year in high school. I took winter break and I actually finished a book. It was not a very good book. (laughs) Um, I had to write several books getting a little bit better each time. Um, But I basically, I just fell in love with actually writing the end of the book because I discovered Mm. writing the end was even more fun than writing the beginning. And so then I got hooked on just writing book after book after book. So between my senior year in high school and my freshman year in college, I wrote I guess, seven books uh, during that time. And it was the seventh book I wrote, which I wrote between the summer of my freshman and sophomore years in college, ended up being the first book I sold. Great. So these books that you, that you were beginning to write where you were able to kind of see them from the beginning to the end, was there common themes, genres, categories uh, that you were really kind of focusing on during that time? 
during that period of time. Um, so every single one of them was a found family book, not surprisingly. Mm -hmm. That's pretty much true of all my books that I publish today. Um, they varied between middle grade and young adult. I started in middle grade and then went to young adult. They were all either paranormal or sci-fi. Uh, of some type and I bounced back and forth between middle grade and YA for a while um, and then the first book I sold was a paranormal YA and I stayed there for several books and then went all over the place within the young adult category. And because you were writing so much uh, and getting so much out of it did you have even at that sort of young age like this self-discipline to, to do the work to, you know, from where you kind of in your younger years, kind of at the beginning, were only really starting things and then abandoning them now developing to uh, seeing the whole thing through. Did that really come as a result of you developing this habit of, of writing every day or, you know, some sort of discipline along those lines? I did end up with a habit of writing every day, but at the time it felt more like an indulgence. Mm. So writing during that period of time, it was probably the purest emotional experience of mm -hmm. writing I've ever had because it wasn't yet about discipline and it wasn't yet about publishing per se. And it wasn't about, it wasn't even about craft. Uh, you know, a lot of those first books weren't even very good books, but it was just, I think I got a little, into the power of, I'm like, it's like reading, except everything you want to have happen, happens. Sure. <laughs> and you're like, ha ha ha, I'm in charge of it all. And it was just, it was so much fun. It was a roller coaster. It wasn't something I had to force myself to do. After I forced myself to finish that first book, uh, during that period, I never had to force myself to finish again. I always, I was actually, I would make myself my freshman year in college, I had a rule that I couldn't write unless everyone else was asleep because I didn't want the fact that I was trying to pursue publication young and I was writing to keep me from having a real college experience and bonding with people and having the full experience. So I used to write from two to four in the morning, every morning, uh, my freshman year and sophomore year in college, pretty much. And then I didn't take classes that started before noon. <laughs> And so I would sleep late while everyone else was in classes. And then I just arranged my schedule to accommodate that. And I did that, you know, not every night, but almost every night. I wouldn't start writing between somewhere between midnight and two. And I'd write for a couple hours a day, pretty much the entire four years of college. Wow. That's great. And so I'm sure that time was a time where there wasn't too many people around. And you, so you just kind of had that focus. Did it become harder to kind of hide it? Not that you were, but once you started getting uh, deals and, and things and things started to kind of uh, come to fruition, uh, was it harder to kind of hide it or keep that private time to yourself? You know, it really wasn't. By that time, I'd found my wonderful group of mm -hmm. college friends who were like a family. We're still friends today. You know, you just love each other and everyone sort of had stuff that they were really into and really excited about. College was wonderful for me because it was a place where everyone seemed like they were just really supportive with other people. Mm -hmm. So I'd come from sort of a really competitive environment and suddenly got into an environment where people were like, hey, we're in college, we're in, we're doing our thing. And everyone was just 
really excited to do whatever it was they loved and really supportive of other people doing what they loved. So my friends knew I wrote, they celebrated with me when we sold the first book. I sold my first five while I was still in college um, because I had this huge backlog of I just wow. keep, kept writing books all the time. Um, and it, it didn't even really seem to strike anyone as all that weird. They were just like, yeah, that's Jen's thing and everyone has a different thing and yours just happens to be that. So it was really kind of this this magical time and space where I was having, you know, a really exciting college experience, doing a lot of neat academic things, had a great group of friends, and everyone was just really supportive and loving and thought it was cool. My roommate taught herself how to face books out on bookstore shelves the <laughs> summer my first book came out. She would go to all the stores and legit just rearrange everything to put my book on as big a display as she could. And it was just, everyone was wonderful. And college for, you know, many people go to college because they are pursuing their dream to become a doctor, a teacher, whatever the case may be. You sort of had parallel dreams in which one happened while you were pursuing the other. Uh, so you became published while you were trying to pursue this other career. Was it kind of hard to still have that motivation to pursue that career, given that one goal happened so early for you? You know, it, it really wasn't, I think, because I, for, I have never been an adult who doesn't do both. Mm. Um, and I didn't really want to major in anything related to writing when I was in college, because it was in that time where I was enjoying writing so much that I didn't want to have to do it. I didn't want to get graded on it. I didn't want to be stressed about it. Um, so I actually graduated college with the minimum number of English classes I needed to graduate and I was scrambling to get them uh, my senior year, even though I'd loved English in high school because in college I sort of transferred all of that into my recreational, which then became professional writing. And academically, my first semester, I just took the most wild array of classes you can imagine. I took a class called hoaxes and fantasies in archaeology and like animal models of clinical disorders, film studies, you know, uh, cognitive science. And I just wanted to sort of learn everything and try everything. And I ended up majoring in cognitive science, which was interdisciplinary between psychology, philosophy, linguistics, neurobiology, anthropology, computer science. It's basically any class on the entire campus that had anything to do with the brain or thought. Mm -hmm. um, and very early in my career, freshman year, I got involved in a psychology lab um, that studied the way that non-human animals think about the world. Uh, so there was a habitat, there were a bunch of monkeys. We just studied how monkeys thought about the world during the summers. I would go to field sites in Puerto Rico and in Florida where there were free ranging um, lemurs in one case and rhesus macaques in the other case. And we designed these experiments to see what monkeys knew about what other monkeys thought and all of these things. And I just fell in love with the science of it all. Um, and so I pursued both at the same time. And I was doing that from the time I was 18, 19 years old. So I am now 36 and I have zero frame of reference <laughs> for what it's like to be an adult who does not do both because I was doing both before I even really felt like an adult. Sure. And so, yeah, and just like you mentioned, you, you're writing several books now, you have several degrees. So because you're the cognitive 
science expert. Let me throw this theory at you and see if you would agree with it and shoot it down if, it's, if it doesn't hold any weight. But is it sort of a, a balance for you? You need that right brain activity of the creative writing with like the left brain, you know, functions of, of the academic aspect. And you need to kind of have both in your world that you can kind of switch back and forth to. Does that even make sense? It does make sense, but that's actually not the way it feels to me. People always see science and writing as opposites, right? Mm. Like that's a very common idea is that it's your left brain and your right brain and the science is logical and the writing is creative. Um, but actually for me, they feel very, very similar. Like science is a creative endeavor. You're coming up with out-of-the-box questions, and then you have to design ways to answer those questions, right? And at the same time, I tend to approach my writing in a very scientific kind of manner. I do nowadays what I call theory-driven writing, which is uh, on the psychology side of things, there are all these theories about why people like stories. Why did we as, as a species evolve to be such a story loving species? So that's a psychological question. It's an evolutionary biology question that people have debated. So on the science end of things, I know all of these theories about this. And you test those theories in laboratory settings with experiments. But as a writer, I test those theories in my books. So oftentimes a specific book will be my test of a theory. So I will generate a book based on the theory. And then I get caught up in the creative aspects of the book and I fall in love with the characters. Um, but then when I come back to revise, I return to the theory I'm writing based on and making sure I am actually hitting what that theory predicts that humans like about stories. And then conversely, the science I do now is about the psychology of stories. So I have a lab dedicated to studying books, movies, and television shows, to studying fandom. So mm -hmm. I study in a laboratory setting what makes us like stories. And I can actually test that. Like we just, my lab's just publishing a study on the psychology of book titles and what makes mm -hmm. a good book title. And what certain buzzwords based on psychological theories might we be attracted to? And so I have a laboratory. I actually test that. I get graphs. I see the answers. And then I go and title my books based on what I've sure. found. And we can also do, I do a lot of studies. You know, I think readers and educators, we know we have seen the effects that books can have on people. We've seen the psychological importance that books can have in a lot of ways. And so in my lab, I go and I actually document and show in a controlled fashion, like a recent study we saw, we were like, yes, uh, reading an excerpt from Alan Gratz's Refugee uh, affects people's attitudes towards refugees and legal policy. And we do that because, you know, we do that by randomly assigning people to read different things and then looking at this. And then we can do complicated statistical models about what is it about the individual in the book and the interaction between the individual and the book that lets you do these things. Um, and we've done similar things about 
like fiction that depicts, say, autism and attitudes towards and knowledge about autism in the real world. And we do the same things back and forth. We're very focused on popular media. I want things that people are actually reading and watching. Um, we do all kinds of stuff on fandom because I think fan activity is so beautiful. This level of emotional and imaginative investment that you see fans doing in their favorite stories and characters. And we look at, okay, what is it that gets people to do that? And what are the effects of doing that? So we have studies on cosplay and fan fiction and all of these different activities. Um, so oftentimes on the science side of things, what inspires the studies is something from my author life. It's mm. something I've either noticed about myself as a reader. It's something I've seen happening sometimes on social media. Uh, it's something that educators will say again and again, I've seen this and I'm like, okay, let's do a study and let's actually show psychologists and academics and let's do the study that people can point to and say, yes, we have actually tested this theory we have and it, in fact, is true. And then in the wonderful scientific way, scientific method way, each experiment gives you new data, new data gives you new theories, you test the theories, you refine them, you go back and forth. And so for me, the, the writing and the science don't feel like different things. It's all one thing sure. that I just happen to do in two different ways. That's great. And since we're on the topic of fandom, what do you think, you know, if you look at kind of fandom right now for young people, from adolescents, what do you think is probably one of the most interesting aspects of the fandom and the, the tools and the outlets that young people have right now? Um, well, what's really interesting to me about fandom and something I've been very theoretically interested in is that I think a lot of fandom and fan activities, um, you know, there's been a, a historical tendency to view fandom as a fringe subculture. Mm -hmm. That's sort of how it was originally yeah. studied in like anthropology and sociology of, you know, this is this, this community that's arisen around doing this thing and they try and have uh, different reference points for it. But on the psychological side of things to me a lot of the activities we see people actually doing in groups in fandom um strongly resemble and have continuity with things that readers who aren't involved in fandom do so i think that there is a spectrum of imaginative and emotional engagement with fiction so there are some people who get really emotionally invested in fictional characters and fictional worlds. There are some people who think about books when they're not reading them, who go to bed at night oh. spinning theories and imagining meeting their favorite character and all of these different kinds of things. And I think what you see in fandom is you see activities that parallel that very closely. So for example, if you look at the act of writing fan fiction, um, oftentimes, especially early fan fiction, sort of the first fan fiction people write, will very strongly uh, resemble the kinds of daydreams that a lot of people have about fictional characters. Um, so I always do a poll in my lab. I have about 20 undergrads who work in my lab every semester and four or five graduate students. I'll do a poll and I'll say, how many of you daydream about fictional characters? And half of the people in the lab are like, all the time. 
and the other half of the people in the lab are bewildered and they're like I have never done that in my life why would anyone ever do that um, and these are all people who have joined my lab so they're interested in stories in some way but it's just this sort of spectrum on how people engage and of the people who have daydreamed about it some of them end up being people who are involved in fandom and maybe they also read fan fiction or they write it you know it's this way of imaginatively mm -hmm. interacting with the character when you can't actually get that two-way interaction any way other than in your imagination but then there are people who actually aren't involved in fandom at all but they're doing all of these what i call fan adjacent activities so they are coming up with fan theories about what happens next and they are uh, daydreaming about the fictional characters and they are learning things about themselves by reading and really reflecting on and drawing this sort of very personal meaning to books. So one thing I've been very interested in studying in my lab is looking at that continuity. And if you buy into this theory, which I've written a couple papers on, then studying fandom becomes even more interesting because it becomes this enormous data set that people have <laughs> lovingly provided you with that's sort of an external manifestation of the kind of imaginative and emotional investment that as authors we would all love sure. for our audience to have. And there are just millions of data points sitting out there because people are externalizing their version of doing it. They are doing it in a community, in a group. And instead of it being a solo activity, it's becoming a group activity. And that really seems to be one of the things that distinguishes fan adjacent activity from actual fandom activity, is that fan adjacent activity is often something someone does solo. Mm. So like, for example, someone might daydream about meeting the Avengers and the Avengers adopt you and you become a pseudo Avenger. And like, this is not an uncommon daydream sure. for people to have. But in fandom, the way that manifests is you write the story about that happening and then other people read that story sure. and you're interacting um, with it. Um, so for me, that's what I love about studying fandom and that's how I think it can be very useful to authors writing books but also to educators teaching books um, because it is a way of meaning making that mm. is not traditionally taught or encouraged necessarily. It's a way of very much so personalizing um, a story and acknowledging what that story and those characters can mean and co-authoring and contributing to it. Um, so it's about not just about what did the author mean by this but what meaning can i make mm. of this um so it is sort of a co-authoring of the book which i think to some extent happens anytime anyone reads a book no mm -hmm. two people are reading the exact same book because we're all bringing our personal perspective to bear on that book we're all um fleshing out what we read with our own imaginations and so as an author i am just fascinated by what is it that makes a reader move from being a passive consumer of something to an active co-creator mm. of that thing because i think if you can get the imaginative contribution for the audience and if you can leave the room for that imaginative contribution um that's where you're going to see those very high levels of emotional investment 
And there are all these different ways that you can imaginatively invest. We've sort of found like five different ways. Um, but they all end up with this sort of personalization of the narrative and the narrative taking on more personal meaning because you are putting stuff into it as well as taking stuff out. Hmm. And obviously with fandom and you, and you alluded to this is that community plays such a big part in fandom. So I'm wondering like for the person that is a fan of something, but can't necessarily or is having a hard time trying to find the community or outlet that, that is around that object, that thing that that person is fan of. Is that something that's hard to measure or is that still considered fandom, even though there isn't a way to share what they are fanning over? You know, you see posts on Tumblr all the time where someone says, I need to find the other fans of mm. XYZ. I need to make everyone I know read this thing so we can do the things that we do together about this thing. Um, from the psychological perspective, I think the activities you're doing, the drive you have is very much the same, um, but it tends not to sustain mm. as long if you don't have people to do it with. Sure. Um, so if you have all the love for a book in a wor the world and you've read it a bunch and you do all of this stuff, but there's no one else to share it with, I think you're more likely to move on to another mm -hmm. book being that book. Um, at the same time, I do think that um, this sort of is the psychological basis for why books that themselves provide community and belonging so that provide that found thing, family thing that I loved mm -hmm. in Wild Magic, that provide a fictional group that you can imagine yourself belonging to. Um, that's a way that fiction itself can provide belonging without having to belong to a wider fandom. Um, so I wrote a series several years ago called The Naturals, which is about an FBI think tank that uses teenagers to profile serial killers. And it's a found family book, right? It's about the outsider coming in and becoming a part of this crime solving family. Um, and what I hear from readers all the time is they love that there's something to belong to. They're like, I am a natural. I want to imagine joining the naturals. And so they're getting the belonging from the book itself. And so that's something I very consciously do with every book, in part because it's a theme that really resonates with me personally, but in part because I'm a scientist and there's a theory that says fiction can fulfill your need to belong and maybe we're driven to it for that reason. Um, so in my latest book, The Inheritance Games, um, the family, there's always a group at the center that an outsider becomes a part of. And Inheritance Games, it is an actual literal family, is the group. So the premise of the book is it's about this ordinary girl who goes overnight from sleeping in her car and, you know, having to scam people at poker in order to buy food. Um, and then one day she finds out she's been named in the will of a billionaire who she has never met in her life, total stranger. And she finds out he's left her virtually his entire fortune. And his family, of course, is very upset and has no idea why. She has no idea why he left this to her. And the only caveat is that she has to move into his sprawling secret passage filled mansion for one year and live there with his family, including his four grandsons who are all kind of close to her age. They're also all very 
magnetic and charismatic and uh, attractive. Uh, there are varying degrees of fascinated by her or antagonistic to her, um, but they've got this very tight-knit brotherly bond um, that is not perfect at the start of the book. It's been splintered in a variety of ways, but it's still there because they have grown up in this world where they really only had each other. So it's that very tight-knit bond. And in some ways it is a story about her becoming impossibly and despite the circumstances, one of them, right? So it's finding that belonging in the place that she would have said she should least belong in the entire world with these, you know, spoiled billionaire boys who are suddenly no longer billionaires because she's got all the money. Um, but it does become that, um, you know, friendship and something that goes beyond friendship because it, it's this feeling of like, I'm working on book two and there's a line that's sort of like, she's one of us. Mm -hmm. And it's just that powerful feeling of having that us to belong to. Um, and so I think one thing that fandom gives people is it gives them a way to identify. It lets them find people who share things with them, right? It gives them that community. Um, but I also think there's a degree to which even before you find those people in that group in the real world, you can get that from books mm. if you can project yourself into the mm. book and become part of this fictional us. That's great. Uh, so the inheritance, the inheritance game, like you said, uh, comes out on September 1st. What was the nugget, that initial idea that got you started on it? Um, so I was for working on another project at the time, just in the proposal stage. Uh, and the other project was a theory-driven project. So I was working with a theory of fiction. Uh, like I said, it's one of many, but one theory, evolutionary theory of fiction, is that it is a byproduct of an adapted preference for gossip, meaning mm. that we evolved as a species to be attracted to gossip because it's a handy way of sure. keeping track yeah. of hierarchies and allies and enemies and all of these evolutionarily relevant information. Um, and that fiction is gossip about people who happen not to be real. Mm. Uh, and so this theory predicts that the stories we like the most are the most salacious, gossipy <laughs> things. So the same story you'd be like, oh my gosh, if it happened to a coworker and that would be splashed across the headlines of news stories mm -hmm. if it happened in the real world is the same stuff we're attracted to in books. So for that project that I was working on, I was coming up with all of these different reasons that um, different characters could have become super famous overnight. Like what is the thing if you're an ordinary person mm -hmm. that could land you on the front pages of the paper and suddenly make you the topic of gossip literally around the world. Um, and so I came up with all these different ideas and I spent several weeks doing it. Um, and I never ended up writing that project. I wrote the proposal and then it sort of didn't go anywhere. But one of the ideas that I'd come up with and sidelined was, well, what if a billionaire randomly left you all his money? And I immediately thought, no, that's too good to use for a side character in this book. That has to be its own book. So when the proposal I was writing just didn't seem to be sort of hitting quite yet, I was like, well, what about this billionaire book? And for years, I had been wanting to write what I called my puzzle house book, mm. which was I love like escape rooms mm -hmm. and puzzles mm -hmm. 
and codes. In high school, my two favorite subjects were English and math. And I loved mathematical codes, reasoning, puzzles, riddles, all of that kind of logic side of things. So I'd always wanted to write about a mansion that had all these puzzles and riddles built into it. So I had this billionaire idea and I was like, oh my gosh, this can finally be my puzzle house book. Cause I had proposed to my publisher at least one before and they're <laughs> like, no, no puzzle house book for you. And now I was like, but what if it's a billionaire <laughs> puzzle house book? And then they were like, that's awesome. Let's do the billionaire puzzle house book. Um, and so it became, you know, this billionaire leaves her his fortune, but he is a puzzle and riddle and code obsessed billionaire who raised his four grandsons where every Saturday morning he would set up this elaborate game for them where one clue read, led to the next. It was part treasure hunt, part code decoding. It was almost like every Saturday morning was national treasure and he would do this thing. And so they played that game their entire lives. Then he dies and suddenly she's there and one of the grandsons is convinced that she's the first clue in the final game. Hmm. That he has left, uh, there's a line in the book where one of the grandsons says, he left you the fortune and all he left us is you. Hmm. And so it's this puzzle and riddle and game sequence where she's solving a mystery. And I love mysteries, but I, like I said, I'd written the natural series, which is serial killers. So I'd written a lot of solving of murder type mysteries. And so I became really interested in the idea of writing mysteries that weren't murder mysteries uh, and that had sort of very personal questions at the center. So the center at the core of inheritance games is the question of why her? So why out of all the people in the world did he leave $40 billion to a teenage stranger. And it's a question she wants to know too. And I think it's a question that's very resonant for most of us because everyone's had that moment in their life, some good, some horrible, where you think, why me? Why did this thing happen to me? And so that's the question that she's investigating through solving all these puzzles and riddles and codes is that she's a person to whom the most incredible, unbelievable thing happened to, and the question of why me might actually have an answer. So because this book has so many twists and turns, has puzzles, when you go to plan out a book like this, is it, are you kind of planning out the plot points and then figuring out what the puzzle is later? Or how do the kind of, how does the puzzle of the book kind of fit together? How do the different pieces kind of fall into place? So I had sort of a two-step process in um, plotting. The first step was at the proposal version. And I like to say I don't write mystery books. I write mysteries, plural mm -hmm. books. And so the way I've plotted my last several books is at the beginning of writing, I basically want to know the three central mysteries of the book. Um, so three big questions that within the first 75 pages I'm going to plant and that the answer is going to come to at the end of the book. So what I like to know when I sit down to write the book are what are the questions? One of them is going to be the A plot question. Um, that's why her, why did he leave the money to her? 
Um, then uh, usually there is, uh, I'm trying to think what, then there are two more questions in the book. One has to do with the brothers themselves in the past. And one has to do with some sort of dangerous and scary things that are happening to her as it goes along the way. Um, so when I first started plotting, I had the three questions. And so I would build, this is how I'm going to build the questions. This is what I'm going to want to know. I didn't, when I turned the proposal in, I didn't actually have any of the answers yet. <laughs> but when my publisher said, yes, we want to do this book, I was like, okay, now I have to figure out the answers. So stage two of the plotting was I had the three questions. I decided what the answers to all of those questions were. So at that point, I don't know how they're going to get to the answers. I just know what the answers are. Um, and then for me, stage three of plotting with inheritance games, uh, it was a little bit different because I don't always have a stage three of plotting. Sometimes it's just questions and answers. And then I'm like, okay, I'm going to start and 400 pages from now, they're going to get the answers somehow. Um, but with inheritance games, I did actually plot out the puzzle sequence. So I wrote down, like I was Tobias Hawthorne, the billionaire building the puzzle. Mm. What puzzle did he build? So what are each of the clues? What next clue does it lead to? Um, and I wrote out that entire puzzle sequence. And I actually, I spent one day building the puzzle sequence. Um, and then that was sort of my frame of reference for the book. So the A plot was plotted. I knew what every discovery she was going to make on the puzzle sequence was. And what I don't plan and what has to come out while I'm writing is all of the complicated personal relationships mm. that are happening around that. All of the revelations that weren't just, okay, here's this clue, that all happened a lot more organically. And so that meant mm. that the B and C plots, were, which were those other two mysteries, um, were things that just had to happen as they happened. Um, and so usually what happens there is that I sort of do what I call micro plotting. So I will plot out and figure out what's the next thing that's going to happen. I actually, I write the words, the shape of the story in my notebook over and over again. And that might just be, what are the next three scenes I need? Or sometimes it'll be a list of all the balls I have in the air mm -hmm. that I need to start catching some of them. Or it could be, okay, here's the next four scenes, but here's all the revelations that have to happen in those next four scenes. Um, and so I do that in my first draft. And then I actually go about the work of making it all make sense in draft two. So draft one, because I don't plan it that elaborately other than the answers, um, often is a little more meandering than what we end up with. So I'm revising right now. And so far, I've managed to cut like 85 pages out of the first 300 while keeping all of the plot points <laughs> just because once I know what all of those things that need to happen both interpersonally and with the plot are, then I can have multiple things happening in a single scene. So usually in my first draft, it'll be like one thing happens in each scene and maybe it's a character arc thing. Maybe it's dedicated to this relationship or that. Maybe it's a puzzle thing. And then when I revise, once I've discovered what all those things are, it's a matter of making it a faster read by doubling up on those mm -hmm. things, making sure the big moments in the puzzle are also those big emotional character moments. Um, so for example, in the revision I'm doing right now, 
all of the big moments in the book are still there, but they're just being folded on top of each other in a way that takes a lot less page space and is a lot more compelling. And because there is a book two to this series, was that always in the works during the initial kind of thought process or did it come in after the fact and you had to like take account for that second part of the story? Um, we sold the book in a two book deal and the second book was unspecified. Mm. So it was basically, we don't know if it's going to have a sequel or not. So my plan was to write book one as a standalone. Cause if there's one thing I've learned as an <laughs> author, it's that any standalone I write, I'm going to get the email saying, where's the sequel immediately mm. anyway. Um, and so the first draft of the book really did stand alone. And then I did a revision on it. And there's something that came up in the revision that I was like, ooh, what if? And there's a whole other layer that got added in the second draft. And that ended up being the thing that lays the basis for the second book. Mm -hmm. So at that point, I'm like, okay, now I really hope that the second book in this contract is a sequel. Uh, and we eventually decided that it would be. So I had a little bit of time to work mm -hmm. on book one where I knew there would be a book two, but I spent most of the time I was writing book one, just hoping that there would be a book two. <laughs> and it's already been announced that, that uh, this story will be a Amazon series. Is there anything you can tell us about that as far as like, are you working closely with the production company or are you advising them in any way to, on the different things? Have they seen some of the early drafts of this second book? Um, they know things that are happening in uh, book two. Um, I'm going to be involved. I'm co-producing. I'm excited. Mm -hmm. I've had a lot of books in development over time, but this is the one I'm getting to be the most involved with. Uh, unfortunately, everything is top, top secret. Sure. So there's almost nothing um, that I can tell you about where we are in the process, except that it is very, very exciting. <laughs> Great. Well, let's wind things down. And as we do ask you a few questions, the first one being, what is your favorite movie that's based on a book? So my answer to this is probably Hunger Games. Okay. When the Hunger Games book came out, I you know, you heard all of the buzz about it in sure. publishing. Everyone at BEA was talking about it. It was all that anyone could talk about. It came out. It did really well. And I resisted reading it for the longest time because for some reason I had this impression that it was a premise heavy book, you know, that mm -hmm. people were buying it and talking about it because of the premise, you know, it's like a reality show, kids killing sure. each other. And then finally I was like, well, I'll pick it up. And I read it and I just remember crying and getting emotionally involved and finishing it and feeling like I hadn't felt probably since I was 12 or 14 mm -hmm. reading a book where I was just like, what was that? You know, it, it had this big impact on me. And then they were making a movie of it. And I was so worried because even though the book exists, once the movie is there. Um, and I remember going to see it and Jennifer Lawrence was so perfect as Katniss. I think one of the things that as a writer, I really appreciate about the way that Hunger Games is written um, is the way they handle what's called meta emotion, the way Suzanne Collins handles meta emotion. And um, so that in psychology is what you feel about what you feel. So it's the idea that we have base level emotions, but our emotions are also really complicated and nuanced. So you can feel something and not know it. Or you can feel something, you can feel happy and feel guilty for feeling happy. And what's really interesting to me when I read Hunger Games 
is that somehow as the reader, you know what Katniss is feeling, and yet it feels like Katniss doesn't know what Katniss is feeling. And I've always wondered, how did Suzanne Collins do that? Um, and then I was like, and how are they ever going to capture that in a film when it's so internal? And then I thought Jennifer Lawrence's performance of Katniss was just so good. And then one of the major changes they made for the movie is that the book is all in Katniss's perspective, but the movie actually has a dual point of view um, because President Snow also gets a point of view. In screenwriting, a point of view scene, you always have a point of view character who's in a scene. So if Katniss isn't in a scene, then that scene has to be from someone's point of view who is in there. And so they actually gave the villain point of view. So there are scenes with President Snow where Katniss is not there that turned the movie into much more of a sort of cat and mouse feel mm -hmm. than actually comes for the book. So I, I really liked that the changes they made didn't feel like they changed the core of the book, but did really make it better for the medium that it was in. Great. Yeah. And okay. So next question, is there a book or a series that you're willing to admit you've either never read or never finished? Okay, so this one is hard for me because I feel like I'm going to disappoint a lot of people. Um, Jane Austen. Okay. So every, I, everyone I know who loves the things I love, loves like Pride and Prejudice mm -hmm. and, and the adaptations and all of it. And I remember being assigned, I think it was Sense and Sensibility in high school. Mm -hmm. And I skimmed it and didn't, you know, I was taking right. five AP classes at the time right. and all of that. So Absolutely. part of it may have been that it was introduced to me first in a school setting mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. that that has colored things. Um, I, I, I think I have like three copies of Pride and Prejudice <laughs> and I have read parts of Pride and Prejudice, but I have never actually finished it. That's great. And then finally, what is the last great book that you've read? Okay, so I am in the middle. My answer to that is there are two books that I'm in the middle of right now. And I feel like I have to explain how I can be in the middle of two incredible books at the same time. <laughs> and it comes down to the fact that when my toddlers see me reading something instead of paying attention to them, they wait until I'm not looking and then they steal my book and hide it. <laughs> um, so I was reading and got really, really, really into A Song of Wraiths and Ruin by Roseanne A. Brown. And then it disappeared. <laughs> and while it disappeared, I started Incendiary by uh, Zoraida Cordova. Uh, and then it disappeared. <laughs> I got A Song of Wraiths and Ruin back and read a second bit. And now I'm currently like three quarters of the way through incendiary and I have it locked in a room where the toddlers can't get it, but they're so interesting to be the way I can tell they're truly fantastic books is I usually read straight, you know, pre toddlers. I read straight through. Sure. I was not a person who read a book over multiple days, let alone weeks. Um, but the characters and situations are just living in my mind. And it's mm. probably the first time in my life that I've been able to do that for two books at once. And it's so interesting having it be these two books because they are both high fantasy. They both involve both royalty and possible assassinations mm. or assassins. Um, and yet they are so different and I can hold them both in my mind at the same time. And I'm in love with the characters 
from both of them, um, which again is a total first for me. So my goal is to finish Incendiary tonight and then like trail the toddlers until I figure out what they did with the song of uh, Wraiths and Ruins so I can finish that one too. That's so funny. Well, Jennifer, the Inheritance Games comes out on September the 1st. I can't wait to read it and I wish you and the book all the best. All right. Thank you so much for having me. And that's a wrap on this week's episode. I want to thank Jennifer Lynn Barnes for joining me again. The Inheritance Games comes out on September the 1st. And hope you'll check that out. Thanks for listening and be careful to keep an eye on this feed for some other great conversations we have with YA writers coming up. I'm Brock Shelley, and until next time, keep reading.